Good morning, Dawson. So privileged to be with you this morning. I'm humbled to stand before you this morning, recognizing the great cloud of witnesses that has stood in this very place. The very inception of Dawson has been faithful men who have opened God's word to you, and I'm humbled to be here recognizing the faithful ministry of of Dr. Fenton for 25 years who loved you, cared for you, led you so faithfully, and fed you God's Word. I'm grateful, uh, recognizing that over the Uh, This journey that has led us to this place, we have been in conversation primarily with a pastor search team that has beautifully reflected you, Dawson, to us. As I think back over these past months and the conversations that we've had with Phil and Mike and Trey and Dean and Ginger and Julie and Mary, I think about the great cross-section that that team represents of those that I've looked at in the previous two services and as I look out at you this morning. They represent the love, the excitement, the joy, and the passion that is this church, Dawson. So it's been a great journey and we have felt the prayers recognizing that you as a church over the past year have been in a, a strategic time where you have prayed for Uh, The person that would stand right here, not knowing the day, not knowing the face, not knowing the name, but you have prayed. And we feel, myself, Danielle, our boys, we feel the faithfulness of your prayers. We've been undergirded by your prayers. It's been a beautiful morning where we've been able to uh, worship with you. We heard the choir in our previous service, our instrumentalists the faithful leadership of of John, and we are so thankful to be here this morning. Over the past few weeks, if not longer than that, we recognized as we were talking to the pastor search team that our paths were headed potentially to this kind of day, a trial sermon in view of a call. So what did I begin to do? I began to listen even more intently and closely at the messages that were being preached The ministry staff has opened up God's Word and uh, taught on some of the more foundational, familiar passages as they've gone through this verses series. And so as I was listening to verses, I told Danielle that I really wanted to subtitle it, Verses, All the Trial Sermons that I Wanted to Preach, that have already been preached. (laughs) I mean, one after another, passages that were floating before me in my mind, thinking this would, this would be a great passage to preach. And it was preached three weeks ago or four weeks ago. <laughs> so this morning, I want, us to t- I want to take you off the, the beaten path. I, I want to travel to a passage, really two passages this morning, that probably are not on the scriptural greatest hits of, of any of you this morning. So Genesis 5 is where we'll start. If you'll take your copy of God's Word, turn with me to Genesis chapter 5. This is the first genealogy in Scripture. In Genesis chapter 5, starting in verse 18, we read these words. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. 
Jared, in verse 19, lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Many of you, maybe in January, uh, said, I'm going to read through God's Word in a year. Maybe two years. You started a Bible reading plan, and as you walk through the book of Genesis, the first four chapters are very familiar to you, maybe even very foundational to your upbringing in the church, be it Sunday school or vacation Bible school. Even if you've never darkened the doors of a church, the first four chapters of the book of Genesis are chapters that are just ripe with relevance in our modern culture. So when you get to Genesis chapter 5, in many ways this is the first, if I would say, skippable part of scripture, skimmable. If, it, if, if we're more sanctified this morning, you skim through it because there's a lot of names of Adam's descendants here and you're walking through it thinking, what, what really is the relevance of this for my life? And then you're walking through it and we come to Enoch, who is one of the most mysterious of all Old Testament characters. He is, if you're counting, the great, great, great grandson of Adam. And we have this obituary that is absolutely unique in many ways other than just one other person in the Old Testament in verse 24 that said that Enoch walked with God and he was not. Why? For God took him. Now as you're walking through Scripture, this is one of these unique places where our question marks are not all going to be answered this side of heaven. The Bible tells us everything that we need to know, but it doesn't tell us everything that we're curious to know. And so as we're walking through Genesis 5, there are questions that come to mind. What does it mean that he walked with God? What did that look like? How did God reveal himself to Enoch? Questions. Not with answers in Genesis 5. You walk through Scripture here and you wonder, how did God take him? Because what we discover in Genesis chapter 5 is Enoch didn't die a natural death. He is one of two characters in the Old Testament, Enoch himself and Elijah, who did not walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Even Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, who walked in our midst for 33 years. He died upon a cross. He walked through the valley of the shadow of death, but was raised to give us victory over death. So even Jesus Christ cannot speak to the uniqueness of what Enoch and Elijah experienced. They walked with God, and they were no more. God took them to be with them. So what does it mean and what are the relevances and what are the ways that God speaks to us through sort of a mysterious kind of passage? Well, we leave it in Genesis chapter 5 and just as you move to the New Testament, we pick back up with Enoch in one of the more famous parts of Scripture. In Hebrews chapter 11, you have the great hall of faith. And there, the anonymous writer of the book of Hebrews, he's pulling out all the portraits that he's going to hang on the gallery of the great faithful men and women that we see in the Old Testament and all of the familiar faces you're going to see in the portraits. you got Abraham that's being hung in the gallery. 
You've got Abel that's being hung in the gallery. You've got uh, Moses who's being hung in the gallery. You have Noah that's being hung in the gallery. And then in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5 and verse 6, you have an obscure and maybe you would even say a mysterious, unfamiliar face that's staring at you. And would you believe it? It's Enoch from Genesis 5. Look with me in Hebrews 11. We read, starting in verse 5, By faith, Enoch was taken from this life. So he did not experience death. Again, just reiterating what we read in Genesis 5. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, verse 6, the writer of Hebrews says, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So what we discover in Hebrews 11 is we allow Hebrews 11 and Genesis 5 to have a conversation with one another that we get a little bit more light that's being shined upon this passage and we discover that what God saw in Enoch was that Enoch was one who desired the utmost to please God. He was a God pleaser. In your family, in your workplace, in life, we're all familiar with people pleasers. There's a tendency in all of us, even the most narcissistic of people in our culture have people that we desire to please. We value their judgment. We value their opinion. Some of that's not even bad, is it? Some of that's life-giving. If you're a father here, if you're a mother here, you recognize how life-giving it is to look into your children and to say well done at times, to commend them, to say I am pleased with who you are. You don't have to be anybody else. Who you are, your uniqueness, all of your eccentric nature, that is what I am pleased with. It gives me joy. More than that, if you've been an athlete, you know what it's like to have a coach after practice. As you're walking back to the locker room, he or she takes you by the hand and says, I just want you to know I am proud of how well you're progressing this season. Or maybe you're in the workplace and you've received that commendation from your employer. You've received that promotion. You've received that well done. And what is it? It is life-giving to you. It is affirming to you. It shows that you're valued. And that's not all bad, but it is bad when you get to the dark side of it. It is bad when you see the flip shadow side of it. Where you move from that healthy place of who you are to constructing this false identity that has no other goal than to be someone who will get the applause of your peers. Get the applause of the audience of men and women around you. And so what we discover with Enoch is that he was one who lived for an audience of one. He was one who desired more than anything else the applause of his creator, the one who would take him in this intimate way to be with him. What does it mean, Dawson, to to please God? What does it look like in your life and in my life from Hebrews 11, from Genesis 5? What does it mean to be one who pleases God? This is a foundational question of your existence and of my existence. And from these two passages, talking to one another, we discover that first and foremost, you please God by believing in God by faith. That you please God by believing in His his existence by faith. 
Now notice in this passage here that we don't discover how God revealed himself to Enoch. But we know that before Noah received the diagram and the, the blueprint for the ark, Enoch's walking with God. We know in this passage right here that Enoch, before Abram would call to, to go into a foreign land, there we have Enoch walking with God. And so what we discover is, is that Enoch, by faith, is believing in the existence of the unseen God. And in our culture, in our society, to believe in the God that we cannot tangibly touch, but by faith we must believe in that He has revealed Himself in His Word, He's revealed Himself in Jesus Christ, that His Holy Spirit desires to walk with us, to save us, to sanctify us, to guide us, to lead us. It takes faith. It takes faith to believe in His existence. Last 200 years, even longer than that, uh, belief in God is being challenged at a variety of angles. Karl Marx would look at Christians and would say that religion is the opiate of the masses. Christopher Hitchens, before he died, would say this is a babyish attempt to answer life's unanswerable questions. Freud would look at belief in the existence of God as just a projection of our deepest longings. And we cast it upon this figment of our imagination called God. Now, with all of that protestation, with all of that uh, skepticism in the belief in the existence of God, it's interesting that belief in God is still at a tremendous rate of popularity in our culture. Gallup, polls 2011-2012, they polled Americans, citizens, and said, do you believe in God? And 92% of those polled said they believed in God. Now, we recognize, you don't have to be a statistician, you, you recognize that 92% of America are not born-again Christians, they're not evangelical Christians. So what does it mean that 92% of Americans would believe in the existence of God? Well, there must be a disconnect between what they believe in and what is revealed in Scripture. And this is the question, what, what are we placing our faith in at times? What even those of us that are in the pews, what is it that we actually are believing in? Is it the God of Scripture revealed to us that we submit to, or is it a God that we fashion to our own liking? Recently, there have been uh, studies that have been done in an interesting book that has a, a lot of relevance for all of us that are here. There was a sociologist that taught at Baylor, and his name is Christian Smith. And he came out with a book called Soul Searchers. And in, in that book, he did this sociological experiment where he went around and began to study Christians that grew up in the church, that were teenagers, college students, and young adults, and began to categorize what their belief in God was like. And, and he coined a phrase that really is one of these phrases that will make sense once we unpack it. But he said the majority of pew-sitting young adults who've grown up in church actually believe in what he deemed moral therapeutic deism. Now that's a, that's a hefty phrase to throw out here, but in actuality it makes sense that the majority of people that sit in pews, they believe, young adults believe that God ultimately is concerned with us living a good life, moral. Therapeutic, that God is mostly and primarily concerned with meeting our deepest needs, our deepest desires to affirm us in who we are. God becomes a divine sense of 
Mr. Rogers. Deism means that God really isn't interested with getting involved with your life. He is out here apart and removed from your daily existence. So the belief in God that many professing young adult Christians believe in isn't the God revealed in the Old Testament to the New Testament, but this moral therapeutic deism. Now, what is that? Well, we're all tempted to it. You don't have to be a millennial, to be tempted to that. This has been around as, as long as, as Christianity has been around that we fashion God oftentimes in our image. That our belief in God and our faith in God oftentimes is this uh, sort of a buffet line. We walk through it and say, you know, the, the grace smells really, really good. So I, I would take two servings of grace, put it on my plate. Uh, discipleship, judgment, wrath, I'm kind of gluten-free right now, so I don't, I don't want any of that. I want a, a costless Christianity. I want a crossless Christianity. And so we walk through that buffet line of beliefs saying, I like provision. I like grace. I don't necessarily want discipleship. Let's let judgment be something from a, a, letter, a latter year there. And so we walk through that buffet line picking and choosing. And so God is pleased when by faith we trust in Him as revealed in Scripture. Where we sit under Scripture, not standing over Scripture, saying, I choose this, I choose that. We submit to the revelation of God, and we believe by faith. So first, you please God by believing God by faith. Secondly, in this passage here, we discover in Hebrews 11, verse 6, that you please God by walking intimately with God. Notice again in Hebrews 11, the anonymous writer Uh, giving a, a sense of assessment of Enoch's life, says that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now again, talking about Enoch's life, what did it look like that he earnestly seeked him? Now, some of us, all of us, are going to have to have that question answered in heaven. We don't know. We don't know exactly what that looked like as, as Enoch sought God earnestly. But what we do discover as we allow this passage to speak into our life, that God rewards those who earnestly seek Him as we seek Him as the sole source of our salvation. When we recognize that He is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through Him, when we recognize that we are not saved by our works, we're not saved by our righteousness, but ultimately through His finished, accomplished victory upon the cross and through His resurrection, and when we earnestly seek Him by faith, placing our trust in His accomplished work, He rewards us by salvation eternally and abundant life. On an earthly existence. Now, this is important for us to understand, but it's not the end of the story because this is the starting line as we talk about salvation. This is, in those theological terms, this is justification, but the story goes on that Elijah, or excuse me, that Enoch walked with God, that he earnestly sought God in Genesis chapter 5. There are two phrases that get repeated, and the phrases are that he walked with God. And isn't it interesting, when you walk through the Old Testament, one of the familiar refrains of the Old Testament to talk about one who desired intimacy with God was that he walked with him. 
Going back to the the days before the serpent came into the garden. Going back to the days where Adam and Eve walked with God and were in communion with God. So Enoch, even after the fall, was walking in this intimate relationship. It reminds us of John chapter 15 as we think about abiding with God closely. It reminds us of the prophet in Micah chapter 6. It would say, and what does the Lord require of you? What is that, Dawson, that we act justly, that we love mercy, and that we walk humbly with our God. We can think of this metaphor because it really intersects our life. How do you get to know someone in an intimate way this side of heaven? How do you get to know someone, what their character is like, who they are? Well, you walk with them. You walk with them in the workplace. You walk with them in life, in, in Homewood, in Vestavia, in Mountain Brook, in Hoover, and all of the greater Birmingham area. You, you see people early in the morning walking together. What are they doing? Whether they're getting to know one another, they're sharing life, they're sharing joys and triumphs and difficulties, all walking together. Danielle and I, we've been married 18 years, 18 years in December. We've known each other for 20 years. I was a freshman at Mississippi College. She was a sophomore at Mississippi College when we met each other. We went on our first date. We came back to the campus of MC. There's a park that's adjacent to the campus of Mississippi College. And we walked through the park. And what did we do? We talked to one another at the park. We wanted to get to know one another at the park. So you ask those kinds of casual questions. You want to know who someone is, where they're from. So I said, now, where are you from? And she said, well, I'm from a small town right outside of Starkville, Mississippi. And I said, that, well, that is really interesting because... I'm from a small town right outside of Starkville, Mississippi. And she said, well, what's the name of your town? I said, Longview, Mississippi. And she said, strangely enough, all my family's from Longview, Mississippi. So in Mississippi, when that gets close, the date ends really quickly at that point right there. (laughs) So I said, you know, I just ate too much. Went back to the dorm, called my grandmother and said, Nana, uh, Elizabeth and Lamar Watley's granddaughter... Important question, are we cousins? (laughs) Very very important here. And Dawson, this is a part, this wasn't in on any of these questions and answers here. So you would be happy to know that we're only second cousins. So it's, (laughs) no, no, we're not related. We're not related. Uh, We weren't related and not second cousins. But I've heard that that goes over to Alabama also, but I'm not real sure if, that, if that's true or not. I haven't lived here long enough to know. So we walked together, and in those walks on the quad of Mississippi College, and the two years that we dated and were engaged before we got married, I proposed to her when she was 19, and when, she, when I was 19, when she was 20, we got to know each other in an intimate way. And isn't it interesting that that intimacy that you can build in that communion of walking with one another, hearing each other's stories and where they're from, you begin to build that kind of intimacy with God. What does it mean to walk intimately with God? Well, it means that you must travel in the same direction, doesn't it? It means to walk intimately with God means that the direction that God is going in, that his way, that his will becomes the direction that you're traveling in. You see, it's easy in life where God is going to the right and we veer to the left. Or sometimes in life where where God is moving straight and, and we move in the opposite direction and thy will be done becomes replaced with my will be done. 
And it's interesting for you to know and for me to know that Enoch is commended for his faith because he walks in the direction and the will and the way of God. And my question to you is, are you walking in the same direction in God's will for your finances? in your family life, in your home life, in your relationships, in your business dealings? What about in your thought life? If you're here and you're a college student, or you're here and you're a teenager, are you walking in God's direction with what you're thinking about when no one else is watching? So to walk intimately with God means that you are traveling in the same direction. Now, I don't know about you and how you are traveling in 2017, but one of the great joys of technology is to plug in any destination and to have a voice tell you through an app or through uh, your navigation system in your vehicle exactly where to go. It's a sweet, a kind voice that tells you in 300 yards, turn right. Uh, take this exit, everything's there for you. You have no excuse to get lost. But at times, even with the voice talking to me, I'll miss an exit. I mean, you've done it before. Even with the voice talking to me, I'll go right when I'm supposed to go left. I get confused. It doesn't make sense to me. And one of the great things about a Google Map app that I have on my phone is, is that no matter how off course that I get, it always recalibrates and it gives me a way to get back on the right direction. No matter if I miss an exit, it recalibrates to tell me the next exit to take to get back on the right direction. No matter if I go right, when I was supposed to go left, it tells me where I need to turn around. And so it is, if you are walking in the wrong direction of God's will for your life, if you've gone slightly left when you should have gone right, you can hear the good peace-giving, life-giving words that you have the ability, enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit, that no matter where you've traveled, that He desires to bring you back on the right road. If you would only trust Him, the Word of God tells us that if we confess our sins, He, Christ Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to put us back on the right road. Or maybe you're here today and you want to walk intimately with God. Not only do you uh, have to travel in the right direction, but you must travel at the right pace. All throughout my married life, there have been conversations that Danielle and I have. I get out of the vehicle, we're going to a venue for a sporting event, we're going to the boys' school, we're going on a date, and it's just an aid in me to get to the place as quickly as I can. So often, I'll hear Danielle behind me say, how's the weather up there, you know? I'll catch you inside. And, and so I have to remind myself, it's not just about the destination, it's about the journey. So I have to slow down. We have to walk together. And so it is, Dawson, it very well may be tempting in your life that at times you've gotten two steps ahead of the Lord's will for your life. At times it very well may be that, that you're three steps behind where God has desired to take you in your life. And, and you want to follow him, but you just don't have enough clarity. You just don't have enough light. And what he's telling you, if you just take one step, I'll give you light for that step. If you take another step, I'll give you light for that step. But I'm not going to show you all the light at the end of the destination. But you must follow me at the same pace. Are you headed in the right direction 
as you walk intimately with God? Are you, are you walking at the same pace? I know you're here as a believer and you desire that intimacy with Him. It's not dependent to totally upon you in any stretch of the imagination, but the Holy Spirit enables and dwells us, guides us, leads us, comforts us, convicts us. Are you willing to hear that recalibration and to get back on the right path to the direction of His way, His will, not your will, not your way? Do you desire to please God? Well, if you're here today and you are not a believer, the first step of faith is ultimately saying, I believe in the existence of God as revealed in Scripture if you're not a believer, the next step is seeking Him as the sole source of your salvation. And if you're walking with Him as a believer, we must ask, are we headed in the right direction? Are we headed at the right pace? This, Dawson, is how we please God with our life. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank You that You desire to walk with us, to lead us, to guide us. You desire to know us in a personal, intimate way. I pray for that person who feels the pressure of skepticism, who's never truly sought you for salvation, has never placed their whole trust in you, is, is doubting maybe even today the, the very existence of an unseen God. May today be a day of faith for them. May they seek you for salvation today. For those of us that have walked with you for years, we recognize the temptation to be a couple steps behind or a couple steps ahead. May we hear that still, small voice guiding us to your hand to be led by you. Lord, I thank you for this faithful church that has walked so intimately and closely it has a legacy that is far beyond this community, but ultimately to the uttermost parts of the earth. All of us here want to be led by you and walk intimately with you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.